The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. Let's open them up to 1 Peter chapter 4. Okay, 1 Peter 4 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. We are uh, in our fall study working through the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to finish up chapter 4 today. Uh, if you have a phone or a tablet, you can open that up to 1 Peter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we're not verse on screen people, so there are hardback black Bibles under every chair. You can open those up to 1 Peter chapter 4 on page 1015. Uh, 1015 is 1 Peter 4. And we're going to get after it. Uh, uh, hey, it, as you're turning there, uh, throughout the years, I don't know if you noticed this, but throughout the years, the way that we use language shifts over time. The way we talk shifts over time. And it's actually funny uh, when you look back at the things that you said, like when you were a teenager, it's actually funny to look back at what you said and kind of poke fun because a lot of the things that you probably said have aged out at this point. It just happens, okay? Uh, take, take the concept of, of something being cool. Okay, something being cool uh, has changed. It's morphed over the decades. So uh, my parents were raised in the 1950s, and in the 50s, uh, you would have said something was keen. Is that funny? Are you laughing at your elders? Is that what you're doing? Uh, keen or, or neato, right? I think we should bring that one back, neato. That was, uh, that's cool. Uh, if you're a child of the 60s, if you're from the 60s, things got far out. It was far out or groovy, right? Like those were the things. Those are what she said, okay? Uh, 70s were gnarly. It's just gnarly, just so gnarly. And then we shortened it in our generation. We call it gnar, shred gnar. I don't know what that means. Uh, uh, the 80s were rad. Oh, they were so rad. They were tubular. They were rad and tubular. Um, in the 90s, things got fat with a pH, and tight, which seems to counterbalance a little bit. Uh, they were fat and tight at the same time, but that's how we did. Uh, and then in the 2000s, things got out of hand because words like crunk and, and, and like beast, oh, that's beast. I mean, I don't even know what that means, okay? And listen, all of them, all of them, as I say them right now, they all sound so, so stupid. They all sound so stupid today, but they weren't when you were using them. They were cool. They were fat. They were crunk. They were neato, you know? That, that's, how, that's how we talked, okay? Um, today, one of the most common words for cool is this. That's actually an emoji. I'm surprised. You, uh, yeah, we don't even use a word now, okay? We use a picture, uh, but if something's cool, it's fire, it's fire. That's, that's, I mean, I, you throw those on Instagram all day long, those fire emojis, right? Um, <laughs> see, in our passage today, we find the idea, the concept of something being fire, but it's not referring to something being cool, actually. Uh, today, we're going to see that suffering is fire. It's the first time in the history of my preaching that I have used an emoji in a sermon title. <laughs> Uh, and that's because we're reaching the next generation here at Fathom Church, you know? Um, no, no. Suffering, suffering is fire. Suffering is fire. Our text in First in, in Peter 4, once again, uh, goes on the topic of suffering. 
suffering. Suffering is actually, if you've followed with this sermon series with us, it's a theme, a general theme that runs through the entire book of 1 Peter. I mean, it's all over this book. And, and, and someone asked me this week, oh, we're talking about suffering again? Because it feels like we've talked about it a lot, this sermon series, and even beyond that. So, so the question is, why do we keep talking about suffering again and again and again and again, like, like, why do we keep talking about suffering in church beyond the fact that it, it's pretty well all through the text? Like, it's in the Bible, so we're going to talk about it. But why do we do this? Well, one theologian I read this week said this sentence. Listen to this. One of the greatest defects in American Christians is that we have an inadequate view of suffering. And I think I agree with that. We have an inadequate view of suffering. I meet with lots of people from our church and beyond, and, and I have met with people who have been taught explicitly that if you really love and follow Jesus Christ, you will not suffer. Who've been taught that? Some of you have been taught that. Somebody well-meaning, as well-meaning as they were, somebody taught you that if you just had enough faith, that you just loved Jesus enough, that you just kind of did the right things and stopped doing the wrong things, then suffering would be a thing of your past. And I always like to ask, how's that working out for anybody? <laughs> Anybody's story feel like that's, that's real? No, 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 because that's not reality. But then more often than even that teaching, here's what I actually talk with people in here. I hear people who have implicitly believed the exact same thing. Even if they haven't explicitly been taught it, they implicitly believe the same thing because they have an inadequate view of suffering. They don't have a robust theology of suffering. So if you've ever found yourself doing this, saying, God, this stuff that's going on right now in my life, it shouldn't be happening to me. Ever been there? God, this, this stuff right now, it shouldn't be happening to me. And the question is, who told you that? Who says? Right? Who told you that that stuff shouldn't be happening to you? Because it certainly wasn't God. It certainly wasn't God's word that told you that. Somewhere else we've picked up along the, along the line that if we do good, we get good. That if we behave well, things will go well. And unfortunately, that's so antithetical to the biblical witness. It's just simply not true. If we want to survive in the day of trial and suffering, we must have a good theology of suffering. So, so I say it like this, we need to train ourselves to believe in the darkness what we know to be true in the light. This is training, y'all. Training yourself to know how to handle suffering when suffering shows up on your doorstep. Because it will. So today we're talking the topic that suffering is fire. It's fire. Okay, here we go. We'll, we'll see, you'll see it in our text right away. Okay, I'm not making this up. Let's look at chapter four, 1 Peter chapter four, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is 
revealed. Okay, there we go. Trials that are gonna come upon you, what are they? Fire. They're fire. Suffering is fire. Literally, the Greek means fiery trial. That's what it's translated, fiery trial. The Greek word is purosis. Purosis, which actually can be linked to two English words. Purosis sounds almost like the first one, purify. To purosis, purify something. The other word that we get from purosis is the word pyro or pyrotechnics, okay? Uh, Same Greek root word that suffering is fire and that fire purifies. It's a purifying fire. So it's, it's here I want to make my very first point about this idea, okay? Suffering refines. The fire of suffering is meant to refine us to refine us. It's a refiner's fire. Maybe you've heard it put like that before. And, and I've heard this illustration a number of times, most recently from Tim Keller. Uh, so, I mean, it may not be true, but I trust Tim, okay? Uh, but this is what the illustration goes. You may have heard this before. Uh, a silversmith was asked how he knows when he's put the silver through the fire enough to refine it to purity. How do you know when, when it's been in the fire long enough? And the silversmith's response was, I know it's been there enough when I can look into the molten silver and I can see my own face reflected in it. And that's when I know it's been purified by fire. That's what Jesus does to us in the fires of suffering. He puts us in the fire, in the trials, in the sufferings over, listen, and over, and over, and over again. It's not one and done. It's over, and over, and over again, over our lifetime, until he can see himself in us. Until he burns some stuff out of us. Suffering refines and I think about that illustration of the smith, of the metal smith, or like, uh, maybe like an iron smith. When an iron smith takes iron ore and throws it into a fire, that ore, it, it contains both the pure and the impure. In its ore form, it has pure and impure. It has worth and worthless. It has metal and then what's known as dross. The metal that's precious that he wants and the dross that's not, that's worthless. And the smith puts them in the fire and the fire causes those things to separate because the pure metal can be handling the heat, the temperature of the fire, but the impure cannot. Okay, the true can handle the fire, but the false cannot. And so the fire is the element that separates and burns off the dross burns off the impure, it purifies, it refines, it, it's changed. And that's what suffering does. That's what suffering does to us. It refines us. It burns away any impurities until the goal is only good remains, until Jesus sees himself in our reflection. Suffering is fire. Now, Peter continues on the same train of thought, okay? But he takes a little deeper. Uh, Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Okay. In those verses, Peter's doing something interesting. What he's doing, I think, is he's showing us that there's like different categories of suffering. There's different categories of trials and sufferings. One, he says, is that sometimes you're going to suffer because you're a Christian. Like because of your faith, you might actually suffer. People might think you're weird. People might slander you. People might malign you. People might cut you off from them. We've talked about this through this book. People might not like the transformation that Jesus is doing in your life, and you might suffer accordingly. Other times, he says, you'll you'll suffer because you're sinning, right? You're a murderer. (laughs) You're a reviler, okay? And, and, and those kinds of sufferings that come about because of our sin, we call those consequences. And it suffers. You, you suffer because of your sin. He says, don't do that. Don't be suffering because you sin. That goes back to last week. Stop sinning, right? But, but, but there's that kind of suffering. And then sometimes, listen, suffering just happens to you. It just happens and you haven't the foggiest idea as to the reason why it's happening. Think of our brother Job. Book of Job in the Old Testament, the wisdom literature. Job had no idea the backroom deals between God and Satan in that book. Just no idea. But Peter's encouragement is this. Regardless, regardless of the type of suffering you're under, he says God is with you in this and he is up to something in this So you should glorify him in your suffering. He's saying how you suffer in these different types of sufferings matters. How you actually suffer matters. And it's actually my my second point I want to make about suffering, okay? Suffering also reveals. Okay, it refines, it burns away stuff, but it also, before it even does that, it reveals what type of stuff is going on inside of you. It reveals the impurities inside us. So think of suffering as a diagnostic tool. Think of it as a diagnostic tool that actually shows what's going on inside, what's what's happening beneath the surface. Back in verse 12, Peter calls these fires of suffering a test. He doesn't actually call them sufferings. He calls them a test. It's a test. And the word translated test in that verse is actually from the root word, which means to poke. To poke or to pierce. That's what the word test in the Greek uh, means. And so uh, one of the things, I I thought about this as an illustration. One of the things I'm into is smoking meats. All right, I got a smoker, uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm awesome, just so you know. Uh, Not true. Okay, I have a Traeger. It does all the work for me, okay? I literally turn it on, set the temperature, put the meat on, and it does all the awesome work. Uh, But I take credit for it, okay? So I love smoking ribs, okay? Pork baby back ribs. Come on over. I've got it nailed, okay? Uh, I I do a pork shoulder. We call them a pork butt. 20 hours in the smoker. It like, you don't even need teeth, okay? Take them out. You don't need them, all right? Uh, pork, Pork shoulders, chicken, beef. I smoked a turkey two Thanksgivings ago doing one again this year. It was incredible. Okay. You've never had a good turkey until you've had it fried or smoked. Okay. If you put it in the oven and put it in front of my face, I will push it away. All right. (laughs) It's my rule of thumb. All right. So I'm kind of a big deal about this stuff, but, um, but there is a tool next to the smoker that is essential if you want to smoke meats correctly. And any good uh, smoker knows that that tool that's essential is a meat thermometer. 
okay? They used to have them analog with like a dial on them. Now they're all digital. It's incredible. But any good smoker knows that you can look at the outside of a meat that's on your smoker and, and it might look like it's good, look like it's done, but if you don't know what's going on on the inside, it can actually be detrimental. It can be detrimental. An overcooked piece of meat can be rendered inedible. It's why if you come over to my house and you order a, a well-done steak, I will kindly ask you to leave. <laughs> that is not how meat is meant to be eaten, okay? Okay, Jesus ate it medium rare, okay? <laughs> Over, overcooked meat, it can be rendered inedible. Undercooked meat can actually make you sick. So you pierce the meat with the thermometer to figure out what's going on inside. Listen, it's, the look is deceiving. It might be done, it might not, but it looks like it's done. So suffering reveals our inner temperature. It reveals what's going on inside. Not what you're putting out there. Not what you're shielded up with. Not what you're posting. It shows what's going on inside. So back to the ore illustration, okay? The iron ore illustration. Under normal temperatures, a piece of iron ore has those two things I talked about. It has metal and it has dross, but they are inextricably linked in this piece of ore, meaning you can't tell where one begins and the other ends. It's just all in there. It just looks like a big black piece of ore, okay? Under normal temperatures, under normal conditions, you don't even know what it's made up of. You don't know how much of that is precious metal. You don't know how much of that is just rock or, 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 or dross and, and how much of that worthless stuff is needing to be burnt out. You have no idea. The only way you can tell what it's actually made of is you put it in the fire. You put that thing in the fire and sometimes you put that in the fire and almost the whole thing is incinerated because it's revealed that there wasn't much inside of there of value. It's just burnt away. It was all dross. Other times, though, you put it in the fire and it'll come out with very little change because it had already been purified. It had already been made pure metal. See, spiritually, the trials of fire reveal what you really trust. Reveals what you actually trust in your heart. It shows you what you're made of you're made of. Here, here's what I've learned in 20 years of pastoral ministry. Our hearts are an amalgam of allegiances. Our hearts are, are this mishmash of different trusts. We all, we all have divided hearts. We have divided hearts. Some of the stuff that we trust in are good things, some of the stuff that we trust in are not good things. And then you can throw in there, some of the stuff that you trust in is genuinely God. But it's all three of those things that are in you, in your heart. That's the iron ore. And we all start out with this mentality. Like when you get saved and we do like a baptism or something, the testimony is always like, I love God. I love God. I live for God. God is the most important thing in my life. And we all said that and we all believed that when we got saved. But the reality is there's a number of other things that are inside of us. It's vastly more complex than that. Alongside God, you trust in other things. I trust in other things. And I'm just telling you, you'll never know 
how much you trust in them until they're threatened. Until the heat gets turned up. You cannot reveal what's in your heart without suffering. I know pastors or preachers are notorious to make sweeping statements that may or may not be true. I think that one's true. You cannot reveal what's actually going on in your heart without heat, without suffering. So you can trust in your health, your physical health, okay? We're a young church, okay, so, we, so you trust in our health. What happens, though, when you get that diagnosis? And hear me, it doesn't just come at the end of your life, okay? We were 23 when Marcy got sick and didn't get better for 10 years. Our 20s, gone. What do you do then? You can trust in your parenting. Some of you are parents, some of you are future parents. You can trust in your ability to parent, but hear me, what happens when your kids take a different path? Or worse, they reject you. You can trust in your career. Gosh, so many of us are like early in our career. We're thinking about slaying it and working hard and hustling, like doing the things. And yeah, go for it. Do it, okay? But what happens when you're fired? Because it happens. Or maybe you play it straight and narrow. You never have that issue. But hear me, at some point you're retiring. And they're going to give you half a crusty cake and they're going to sing you a song and then you're going to be kicked out. They're going to take your name off the wall, put somebody else's name up and forget all about you. It's going to happen. No matter how, bad, how good you slay it at your work. What about if you trust in your intellect? Hey, we're kind of like an upper, upper middle class church here. A lot of college students, a lot of college grads. Uh, we, we could easily trust in our intellect. We're smart people. We're thinking people. We're reasonable people. We're rational people. But as my parents are aging, what happens when, when you start to see that intellect faculty start to fade on you? Hey, listen, it's coming for all of us. It is. Feel good about this conversation right now? Right? <laughs> this is the truth, okay? What happens? You can, you can have a, a divided trust in your friends, in your community, in your crew, your best friends. Anybody still best friends with their, their best friend from elementary school? Mm, that move. Anybody, anybody from, from middle school, high school, college, you guys are still friends, okay? Uh, <laughs> listen, how many people have you said to, we're best friends forever? And then it just kind of, what happened to that guy? What happened to that gal? Listen to me, your friends, your community, it can move, it can drift, it can betray you can trust in your marriage. Golly, you can trust in your marriage. What a delight it is to be married. And what happens if they let you down? Maybe I'll rephrase that. What happens when they let you down? Or, or what happens when you lose them? Because for each and every married couple in this place, you're either going to die or be a widow. I love you. That's true. All of the things that I just said can be taken away from you. 
They're all good things that you can have some of your trust put in, in this mingled heart of yours. It's the amalgam of, of trust that's in your heart. All of those things are good things, but how will they hold up over time? How will they hold up at old age? How will they hold up at death? They cannot. They cannot survive the fire. And the only way you can see that is that is through suffering. Although those things aren't bad in and of themselves, okay, they cannot be ultimate things. I think it's Keller who said, uh, as Christians, we take good things and we turn them into God things, and that's a really bad thing. This is what the fire of suffering reveals. Okay, we got to finish. Is it hot in here? Talking about fire, y'all. All All right. (laughs) Verse 17. Let's finish this. Verse 17. For it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Okay. If, if the fiery trials of suffering are hitting you, you can know that its purpose is, is to refine you, to burn something off, to refine part of you, okay? Uh, it's, its purpose could be to reveal something inside of you, your temperature, your makeup, something that you are misaligned internally on. But finally, the text commands us to entrust our souls to God in the midst of suffering. That's what it says. You gotta trust God. Christian, you gotta trust God in the, the sufferings, And so I'm going to give you point three. Point three is this, suffering renews. You like those R's today? It refines, it reveals, but finally it renews. It renews our desire for God. It renews our trust in God. When done correctly, when suffering the way that God desires us to suffer, it pulls us towards him. Now it can do the opposite. It can push us away if we don't suffer the way that Peter is instructing us to suffer. But if we entrust ourselves to him, it'll renew. It renews. See, in, in the fiery trials of suffering, this revealing and refining and renewing, you find out some things about yourself. You, you find out whether or not you got into this whole religion thing for God or if you got into this religion thing for you. See, in, in, in suffering, you find out whether, whether you're in this thing to serve him, or if you're actually in this thing for him to serve you. See, in the suffering thing, you find out if, if your faith life is a means to get God, or if God is a means to get the life that you want. You find out if you're, listen, using him. And Christian, the call to you is to suffer according to God's will. That's what Peter just said. Suffer according to God's will and entrust your soul to him who is faithful. Your call is to trust him. 
Now that can be unbelievably scary. Unbelievably difficult, unbelievably scary, but the renewal that comes from the fire of suffering actually is for you to have the fullness of life. The way to suffer is to lead you to full life, not away from full life. And so let me illustrate like this. Uh, There's another illustration for suffering in the Bible, and it's the illustration of pruning. Okay, John 15 talks about pruning, pruning a tree or pruning a vine, pruning, okay? Uh, uh, That is, the idea of pruning is that for a plant to flourish, it has to be pruned, has to be trimmed, it has to be cut back. So we bought a house five years ago. It's an older home, about uh, 60 years old, has these big, huge trees. We got four big trees, three ash trees, one maple tree, and we have to get those trees pruned. They're enormous. They're beautiful. They're part of why we bought the house because it's incredible foliage, but we got to get these things trimmed. And so this, uh, maybe like two months ago, uh, we paid a lot of money to have a professional tree trimmer come to my property and cut my trees back. And if you've seen this, to like the un- trained pruning eye, you watch what's going on and pruning seems awful. It really does. I mean, it seems like a disaster. If you've ever looked at a tree after it's pruned, you're like, that doesn't even look like a tree. That looks like a twig with a few things hanging out from it and a couple of dangly leaves. What did you do to my trees? What did you do? Okay, it looks crazy. You've got leaves and branches all over the place. Sometimes the stuff that's on the ground looks better than the stuff that's up in the tree. You're like, that looks good. Why did you cut that good off and leave it here instead of leave it up there where it looked good? And is, uh, what are you doing with this? And sometimes even the good, healthy stuff on the ground, like you think that should still be connected. Why would you ever cut that off? Why would you ever inflict that wound on my tree? That, that branch bore fruit. I could get apples from that branch. What are you doing? Pruning looks like violence. It looks like violence to a tree. But pruning is the process by which the tree trimmer brings out the best life that that tree can have. The wise tree trimmer, listen, has not removed anything that was not a loss to keep or a gain to lose. Let me say that again. I'll do it. I'll say it again. Sometimes if you preach at a church with more color, they say, say that again. Okay, so I'll say it again. Okay. (laughs) I'll just say it again, pastor. Okay, I'll say it again. The tree trimmer, the wise, good tree trimmer has not removed anything that was not a loss to keep or a gain to lose. And that's hard to believe. That's unbelievable. Suffering is fire. Uh, Okay. So I, I talked pretty openly last Sunday about something that happened five years ago. If you missed last week's ser- sermon, you can go back and listen to it, but I want to talk about it a little bit more, okay? Five years ago in this church, this church was four years old, I was accused and disciplined of uh, plagiarizing portions of multiple sermons. I was removed as the lead pastor and elder of this church for nine months, went through a long process uh, of restoration, and, uh, and that whole experience was like a fire for me. 
Okay, it was like a fire. It was, it was one of those sufferings that I caused. It wasn't like, where did this happen? How did this happen? It was like, oh, I'm dumb. Okay. Uh, so it happened because of me, and yet it was still a fire that I went through. And in that experience, I, I went through all three of the things that I just talked talk to you about. It was refining, it was revealing, and it was renewing. That fire, okay, I told you, it took me months to kind of unwind all of the reasons of how I got to that place, of why I had actually uh, uh, made, those, made those decisions and, and, and sinned against this church. But I came to the place where I, where I realized that one of the big things that was going on in my life was how much of my identity in Christ was wrapped up in what you saw in how I did ministry. So like my relationship with Christ was man, that guy can preach. My relationship with Christ was predicated on, man, that guy can lead this church. Wow, you planted a church, four years old, two services, things are going great. That was awesome. And so much of what I did for Christ overshadowed my love of Christ. And it's not that I, it's not that I didn't trust him. I mean, I did. I just, it took some fire to show up in my heart to reveal, oh, Chris doesn't just trust Christ, he trusts himself. He trusts his abilities. He trusts his leadership. He trusts his gumption. He trusts his reason. He trusts his education. He trusts a whole lot of other stuff and Jesus. And those things needed to be worked on, y'all. And it was nine months of hot flames. Some of y'all were there. Many of you weren't, but some of y'all were there. It was hot. It hurt. I wept. And the craziest part of the whole thing is that when it happened, I didn't even know it was happening. Like, I couldn't even see it. You would have met me in 2018, December 2018, you would have come to our church and you would have thought, this guy's great. And I would have thought, I'm great. But I wasn't. God turned up the heat. He threw me in the fire and that flame refined me and it revealed some stuff in me, and man, it ultimately renewed me. So that I can say, like Galatians 1 says, am I now now doing all this stuff for the applause of man or the applause of God? And listen, I I love, I hate, one of the things I hate about myself is I love, uh, I care a little bit too much about what you think of me. That's one of the things I hate about myself. It's one of those things I'm constantly trying to put to death is that I care too much about what you think of me. But as that is being burnt away, I'm actually finding myself more and more desiring what God wants from me, what God wants from this ministry, what God wants from our church. But gosh, it was a hot, incinerating fire I don't ever want to go through again. The fire burnt away a lot of mess. That's what it does. That's what suffering does. And I chose that one because I talked about it last week, but I could have talked about a number of other sufferings, okay? I could have used my wife's chronic illness about the, the illustration. I could have talked about our miscarriage that we had. I could have talked about my parents' divorce that happened while I was at CCU studying to be a pastor. It's like, God, aren't you proud of me being a pastor now? It's like, no, your parents are getting separated. Great. Is that what I signed up for? I could have used that. I could have used my mom's cancer diagnosis. I could have used my dad's Parkinson's. I mean, I've got plenty of things. You ever wonder like, man, I wish suffering would just happen once. <laughs> like I wish 2019, my th- whole plagiarism thing, I wish that was it. And now I'm smooth sailing forever. No, no, no. This is why we talk about this again. 
and again and again. And we work to believe in the darkness, what we know to be true in the light, because suffering is coming for you. If it's not upon you already. And this is why one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is this. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's it's his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Suffering is fire. It's fire. Now, I want to circle back to the beginning of this passage to close us out. Because uh, before the suffering is fire part shows up in verse 12, the very first words that Peter says are these. Beloved, don't be surprised. And then at the end of verse 12, he says these words. He says, don't be surprised as if something strange were happening to you. Those words are important. What those words mean is this. Suffering is normal. Suffering is normative. Suffering can be expected. Suffering is the norm. Why do we talk about this all the time? Why do we talk about it all the time? It's, it, it's because this book talks about it all the time. And listen, this book is grimy. You read this thing? This thing is messy. It's grimy. Whoever had, was running PR for this thing didn't do a great job. This isn't like winsome, oh, I'd love to sign up for it. Pick up your cross and follow me to death. Yes, please. No, 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 no. This, this book, it talks about suffering, and it's almost as if the God of the Bible wants us to know that suffering in this life is going to be normal. It's almost as if he wants you to know that. It's almost as as though he wants you to know that disappointment and confusion and disorientation around the realities of living in a fallen world are to be expected. And gosh, the reason why I think it's so difficult for us to get our heads around this, especially in our cultural moment today, is that our culture thinks that it is expected for everyone's reality to be full of delight to be full of ever-increasing pleasure and happiness, that life is supposed to be up and to the right. And that's how it's supposed to work. It's expected. It's expected. But the Bible never paints that picture. It never paints that picture. And listen, that's a reason to trust it. It It doesn't sugarcoat it for you. A reason we can trust this is because it tells it like it is. Suffering is normal. It's normative. It's normal for God to bring fiery trials into our lives. It's the only way he can refine you. It's the only way he can reveal what's going on inside of you. It's the only way he can renew your trust in him alone to reveal what's going on in there. And so he brings things into your life that turn up the heat. And listen, those things are going to seem insane to you. They're going to seem irrational. Those things won't make no sense to you in the moment. They rarely do. But it's normal. It's the normal way of things. And we all know this when we talk about raising children, okay? 
Whether you have kids or you don't have kids, okay, you'll understand this. Uh, There is no way to turn a child into a mature adult without them constantly accusing you of cruelty. I mean, I've got an eight-year-old and I'm not even, I'm like, what is, you think I was the enemy of her soul? I pay for everything, right? No, 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 no. Like they constantly do this. Parents know this. Even if you don't kids, you know this. Children are constantly asking of their parents, why are you telling me to do that? Why can't I do that? Why can't I stay up later? Why did you make that decision for me? My daughter came down, I told you this. She came downstairs the other night uh, out of her bed into my, into my uh, living room. She turns the corner, sees that my wife and I are watching TV. She goes, you guys watch TV when I go to bed? <laughs> I was like, you are a good girl for staying in your bed for eight years. But yeah, we've been doing this your whole life, you know? <laughs> Kids say these things. They say, you're not the boss of me. And it's like, yes, I am, okay? <laughs> Read the fine print. I am absolutely the boss of you, okay? So this is the illustration that I use all the time. If you're new with us, you maybe haven't heard this, and so it's brand new for you. But if you're here, you've heard this before. But when Harper, my daughter, was three, I took her to the pediatrician, okay? Took her to the pediatrician for a three-year-old checkup. uh, And her pediatrician is a gal named Dr. Kelly. Harper loves Dr. Kelly. We played Dr. Kelly. We dressed up as Dr. Kelly. She loves Dr. Kelly. And at that stage, she especially loved Dr. Kelly because she wasn't afraid of the doctor at that point. Um, so, so we get there for the checkup. Dr. Kelly walks in. Harper's ecstatic. She does the whole checkup on Harper. Everything's looking good. It's all smooth. It's all good. It's awesome. Until the end of the appointment, when Dr. Kelly, like, reveals her true self, okay? And she says, Harper, that was great. You were doing so well. We're all done, except you need two booster shots, And thanks to Doc McStuffins, she knew what booster shots were, and she was not into that, okay? (laughs) Cartoons backfiring on us. And she freaked out. She freaked out. And she turned to me, and she started crying. And she started saying, Daddy, no shots. Daddy, no shots. Daddy, no shots. She couldn't say a whole lot of words at that point, so it's just, Daddy, no shots. Like, Daddy, no shots. And then, like an unholy strength came over her. (laughs) Like the power of a thousand suns. And she just started like ripping things and freaking out and kicking and punching, trying to avoid Dr. Kelly and getting these shots. And so Dr. Kelly looks at me like it's my fault, okay? (laughs) She looks at me and she's like, can you take care of this? All right, I gotta give her a shot. And so here's what I had to do, okay? I had to take my Harper and I sit her on my lap. And I had to wrap my arm around her arms to brace her arms down from punching. And I had to lay my other arm over her legs to brace her legs from kicking. Okay, and I have to overpower my little girl with my strength while Dr. Kevorkian brings the needles over (laughs) and sticks her in the legs. And I won't ever forget it. I really, I mean, it's... It's a marking experience for a parent because I won't ever forget her looking at me with tears in her eyes. And I'm starting to well up at this point too. And she says, Daddy, no shots. Listen, to the one who's supposed to protect her, to the one who's supposed to keep her from pain, to the one that she's supposed to put her trust in, 
And I even tried to explain it to her, okay? Like I tried to rationalize with a three-year-old. Have you ever tried this? <laughs> I can only imagine, uh, if you've been in the, the room, there's a poster in the pediatrician room with pictures of sick and dying kids on them. And I'm like, sweetie, look, okay? <laughs> the shots are better than lockjaw, okay? You, that's the only explanation I can have for why they would have that sadistic poster in the pediatrician office, okay? It's creepy, but, but I'm, like, I'm like, look, you don't want that. That's what those injections are for, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Her, listen, her fear and her pain were overshadowing any reasonable explanation. Hey, right here. You ever feel that way? Fear and pain overshadowing any sort of explanation. See, the truth is my girl needed shots. I don't want lockjaw. I don't want a dead kid. Are you kidding me? That's the truth. But the truth is also that she has a dad who loves her. It's crazy about her and can sympathize with her in that because I remember being scared of shots too. And that's where I want us to end. Guys, I want you to remember that one of the most important differences in Christianity from, from all the other world religions is this. We have a God who knows what it's like. We've got a dad who remembers what it's like to be afraid, to be in pain, to know that those two sticks are coming. And sometimes he's got to brace us down, overpower us, as it were, for fighting. But we have a God who knows what it's like to suffer. That, I mean, listen, we share a lot with a lot of other religions. There's a lot of overlap if you study world religions. There really is. But one of the main things that only Christianity can boast is that we have a God who knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus suffered in the flesh. Jesus suffered in the spirit. Jesus suffered in his emotions. He suffered on this planet. Only God is a God who knows that when we, when we come to him in our suffering, when we trust in him and trust ourselves to him in our suffering, he's the only one who can say, hey, I know. I know what it's like. I remember. I know what you mean. We have a God who knows what it's like to be us because he was us. And because of that, we can, like Peter said, entrust ourselves to him. He's trustworthy because he's gone through the fire and he's come out on the other side. And we entrust him with this. We trust that God is at work in our mess that even though we don't see it, he's there. We don't trust that there isn't a mess. We don't trust that there won't be any more messes in the future. No, 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 no. We trust him in the mess. And that God knows what it 
feels like to be in our mess and that he is with us in our mess and that he is up to something in our mess. This is what suffering does. It refines, it renews, it restores, it, it reveals. It's fire. And he's with us in the fire. Let's pray. Lord, we come to another sermon about suffering. And God, as much as I feel like it's on repeat, I, I just trust that the reason why you seem to cover this so much in our holy scriptures is because you know that we need it. We need to believe in the dark, what we know to be true in the light. And so for some of us, Lord, in this room right now, some of us, this is an exercise in preparation. For some of us, this is theoretical today. We aren't in the middle of a fire right now. And so right now, Lord, we are learning and growing and deepening in a robust theology of suffering that will prepare us for one day. And so, Lord, I pray we take that seriously. I pray we practice this so that we know that when that dark night of the soul shows up, we're ready. But Father, there are others in here where this is this is more timely. It's more timely because they aren't outside of the fire or waiting for the next fire or just out of the fire smelling a bit smoky. They're in it right now. They're feeling the heat. They might be asking, God, why is this happening to me? It might be revealing some stuff. It might be burning some stuff off. It might be even calling them closer to you or they might be tempted to run from you. But either way, this is not a practice for them. This is a reality for them. And today I pray, Father, that your words would encourage them, that they can know that because Christ suffered, they have a high priest who can sympathize. They've got a father who knows what it's like to get shots. And so like the writer of Hebrews says, they can draw near with confidence. God, suffering is normal. normal. Teach us to believe this. God, suffering has a purpose. Teach us to believe this. God, suffering is a tool that you use to grow us so that you can see your reflection in us. Help us, Lord, to believe this today and as we go into our week. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit and all God's people said.